I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 1. Before we gather around the Lord's table, we're going to look at this first unit of thought after introducing James last week. And uh, let me just remind you also that we'll have these memorizing the letter of James uh, brochures out in the foyer as you come in over the next couple of weeks. If you take one and you're like, I don't know what happened to that or which Bible I put it in, don't worry, we can always run off more. So feel free to take them. There's plenty of them there. And this is just a little uh, way for you to keep up with memorizing the book of James. I hope you got a chance to start this week. And uh, before you start memorizing James, uh, don't just do it your old way. Read what I wrote in here about memorization, and I guarantee you it will help you to put the Word of God inside in a way that it, you, it's always being recalled in your mind. And I think we can grow together as a church uh, that way, and I'll say more about that as we, as we go on. The, the words that we're going to read in James 1 here, 2 through 4, are so familiar to many of us that they can sort of pass us by without much reflection. But they have been, I think, a help and a support to Christians since the time when James wrote them. I want to figure out why this morning. So let's look at these brief three verses. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we start thinking about trials, our minds intuitively think of people we know who have gone through very bad trials, the worst trials. I mean, the trials that we've gone through personally come to our minds. We often think of worse things that people have gone through. I do the same thing. For me, that includes the severe trial of a family that Rena and I met years ago when we lived in Minneapolis. In 1994, Scott and Janet Willis were driving their minivan with their newborn and five other children on I-95 in Chicago on their way to visit their two sons who were students at Maranatha Baptist Bible College. And Scott was a school teacher and a pastor of a small church there in Chicago. And uh, the kids were asleep. It was a, a quiet ride as they're going through Chicago, except for all the traffic. But before Scott knew what was happening, the car in front of him swerved out of the way in order to miss a large 30 pound metal brace that had fallen off a truck. And there was no time for Scott to react. He hit the object and his rear gas tank exploded. He was able to grip the steering wheel and get the car to the side of the road, but the flames were coming around the seat, and he and Janet had to consciously reach their hands into the flames to unbuckle themselves and to get out of the car. Five of their six children died instantly in that explosion. Their little boy, Ben, was taken from the vehicle, still alive but badly burned. He, he was a little boy who loved airplanes and helicopters. And when he heard that he was going to get a helicopter ride to the, the, the hospital, his mom said that his eyes got really big and he was so excited. And then he passed out and never recovered and died in ICU that evening. 
So it was her last memory of their little boy, Ben. So six children. And Scott and Janet's first and second degree burns would heal, they found out soon. But what was astonishing to all the media and everybody that knew them and followed their story was the healing that they had spiritually and emotionally after this. This was a big story in Chicago because not, not, not just because of the devastating loss, everybody heard about this, this terrible accident, but also because the metal piece that Scott had hit on the interstate should never have been there. The piece had fallen off due to the negligence on the part of the trucking company who were using drivers that were not licensed and they didn't know how to properly secure the vehicle. That actually uncovered a big scandal in Chicago, if you can imagine scandals uh, in, in Chicago. So a week after the accident, Scott and Janet agreed finally to give an interview on television about the event. And with the cameras rolling, Scott Willis took the opportunity to address the city of Chicago. And the first words out of his mouth in this interview were from Psalm 34.1. Scott said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In that interview, Scott said, we believe children are a heritage of the Lord. We thank God for six precious children, four rascally boys, a sweet girl, so much like her mother, and a little baby just beginning to smile and grow. We understood that they were given of the Lord, and we understood that they weren't ours. They were his, and we were stewards of those children. And so God took them back. He is the giver and taker of life. We must tell you that we hurt and sorrow as you parents would for your children. The depth of pain is indescribable. The Bible expresses our feelings that we sorrow, but not as those without hope. Scott continued, ever since Janet and I became believers in Jesus Christ, God has been preparing us for this trial. We're not special people. We're sinners saved by grace. And we realize that someday we will stand before the Lord and the things that are here will matter very little. Meanwhile, he said, God's grace is enough. That's Scott and Janet Willis. And when we hear stories like that, we're stunned by that kind of faith. That kind of endurance. That kind of joy in God amidst that kind of trial. But this is the response to our trials that God, through James, the brother of Jesus, is calling us to embrace. Not to be overwhelmed by our trials, but to turn to God in the midst of those trials, to embrace our trials. Now, this is the first message in this series on James after I introduced the series last week. So I want to remind you what James is saying in this letter. This letter, according to verse 1, is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The 12 tribes is a name for the people of Israel who were all descended from the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12, 12 sons of Israel. The dispersion refers to the migration of a people group from one part of the empire to another. So James is writing to early Jewish Christians, many of whom had migrated because they had to. They were forced to flee their homes in and around Jerusalem and seek refuge in other communities because they were being persecuted for their faith. 
We saw an example of that last week in Acts chapter 8. Saul of Tarsus, the notorious Pharisee at that time, was going around searching for Jewish families who had believed that Jesus was the blasphemer and the Messiah that they were worshiping, and, and, and they should not worship him. And so they were no longer bringing their sacrifices or observing the law. And Paul had authority from the Sanhedrin to arrest men and women if they were part of this way and put them in prison and even have them executed. Stephen, of course, had recently been executed. And soon, as believing families realized what was happening, they likely packed up quickly, taking as much as they could with them, journeying with a family or two. You had to journey in packs back then that was for safety to find some place to relocate, some place a good distance from Jerusalem. They had to figure out how to earn a living, how to support their family in a new place, which means that they probably had to take what jobs they could. We see that reflected later on in the book of James. We'll, we'll get there, the letter of James. And, and so they probably had to leave behind some of the comforts they had enjoyed. And all of this because they believed the gospel and chose to follow the Lord. Now, you would think that any of those families would be tempted to worry or despair or even to complain about this turn of events. Wouldn't you expect that? I mean, the church in Jerusalem, according to Acts 2, had started out like such this, this great experience. Luke describes it this way in Acts 2, 46-47. He says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We read these words and we're like, wow, that's the kind of church I want to be involved in. God, do, do it here. Make this kind of church here. That's the kind of thing that was going on. It was an, an incredible beginning. But as time went on and as the Sanhedrin put increasing pressure on the people, the apostles were threatened and and later they received the 40 lashes and and Stephen was executed for, for blasphemy. It was like this dam broke. And the Jewish authorities were determined to stamp out this new heresy following this crucified Messiah. It offended them. So their lives were in a state of upheaval and now it had probably been some years, and, and the, the Jews had scattered around the empire, and they had settled in new communities, and James is writing this letter to encourage them. And what we saw last week is really one of his themes. is he, He's writing a letter that, that follows the pattern we see in Proverbs of wisdom, where, where we, we want to go down this path, and we say these things, but James says, no, this is the path you need to take. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to believe. And we see this over and over in James, and I, I think we see it implicitly here. In this text, too, we shouldn't be surprised that the first thing James deals with in this letter is trials. And as we saw last week, James' overall message in this letter is live up to your faith. Speak and act and respond as if you believe what you say you believe. Do we believe that God is good? Do we? That he always does what's right and true for our good and his glory? Do we believe that God is wise? That he knows the end from the beginning? That he's infinitely informed about what is going on and how to lead and guide events according to his perfect will? Do we believe that God is powerful? That he is in complete control and he's strong enough? In fact, he's impotent, uh, 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 omnipotent. That's, the, that's a better word. Uh, he's omnipotent 
to be able to do anything he wants at any time. He's in complete control. He can rescue people anytime he wants. And all these attributes of God actually would not necessarily mean that we can personally rely on God except for one other truth about God that we have to recognize along the others and along with the others. And that is that God loves us. This God loves us. He really does. It's true. This good, wise, and powerful God loves his people. Do we believe that? Because if all of this is true, if we really believe this, then how do we respond when we experience trials? How does the math work in our minds? Do we say, well, maybe God isn't good after all? Or maybe he's good, but he's not wise. He he doesn't know what's going on. Or maybe he's good and wise, but he really can't do anything about my problem. Maybe what happened to me sort of took God by surprise. Or maybe God is good and wise and powerful, but he just doesn't care about me. But none of these conclusions are true. If God is good and wise and powerful and he loves me, then there is obviously a reason that God is allowing this trial in my life. As devastating as it may seem, as interrupting as it may seem, as inconvenient as it may seem, as heartbreaking as it may seem. James tells us that what we know about our good, wise, powerful, and loving God leads us to respond to our trials in two specific ways in this text. Not the way we might naturally respond, not the path that we might go down first when we start going through a trial, but a way of responding that is informed by truth. By God's grace, first, we must rejoice in the outcome of our trials. We rejoice in the outcome of our trials. And here's what he's saying in verses 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now let's walk through this text and and wrap our minds around this counterintuitive teaching that he's trying to help us understand. It is counterintuitive, too. It's counterintuitive if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't placed your faith in, in the good, wise, and powerful God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us. But even when we know the Lord, when we, when we know we are saved from sin, rejoicing when we go through trials, uh, it doesn't occur to us, perhaps, that this is true because we're looking at the trial. We're looking at the trouble. We aren't looking at who God is. But James doesn't say rejoice only. I know that's my outline there because I was trying to make it parallel with the next point. But he's, my, my, my outline is a little bit of an understatement here. He doesn't just say rejoice. Notice what he says in the text. He says, count it all joy. We could interpret this, count it pure joy. That's, that's kind of the idiom there in that expression. Count it a sheer delight. When you meet trials of various kinds, what trials are those? Any and all trials? Yes, any and all trials. In fact, when he says trials of various kinds, he's not merely saying maybe one person over here is experiencing this this kind of trial, somebody over here is experiencing this kind of trial, and, and, and so forth. What he's actually suggesting is that we can go through various kinds of trials in our lives. In fact, some of them may come in on us like a flood at the same time. You've heard the saying, when it rains, it pours. Have you ever felt that way about things that are going wrong in your life? Yes. Have you noticed that 
that often hard things come in clusters. If it was on one issue, you might say, well, I, I could deal with, with one thing, but now you're dealing with pressure in multiple areas. And James, I don't think, has to be specific here about the trial because it doesn't really matter how insignificant or major the trials are. God is still who he is, no matter what kind of trial we're going through. So our response should be the same, to embrace our trial with joy, all joy, pure joy, in the middle of our trial. Now, why? Why are we called to rejoice? Because we love pain? Because we love discomfort and suffering? No, that's called uh, masochism. That's deriving, uh, deriving pleasure from pain and humiliation. That's a mental disorder, okay? <laughs> Nobody likes pain. They're not supposed to anyway. We're not supposed to enjoy that. Well, what's James saying then? That, that we divert our attention from our trials and think about something else that makes us happy. We sort of go to this happy place, you know, in our minds when, when trial is coming. And I don't think that's it either. Although there are philosophies in this time in the world, in fact, they had started uh, hundreds of years before, that did say, in fact, that when you go through trials, you simply divert your mind to something more pleasurable. But there's a name for that too. It's called escapism. That's not embracing your trials at all. That's trying to ignore your trials. We're not masochists. We're not escapists. What are we then? We are those who find joy in the fact of the trial now because we understand what the trial is doing to us. We understand its effect, its outcome. In verse 3, Our trials are designed by God to test our faith, to try our faith, and this testing produces steadfastness. This word steadfastness is a really important word in James. It's important in the New Testament overall, but it's really important in James. It's going to come up again in the text later on. It's translated here steadfast, and some of your versions may have endurance. That's a good translation. Uh, I, I believe the way I memorized it in the King James years ago was patience. That's a good word, too. Hupamene. It literally means to, to remain under pressure, to stay put. God is using your trials to produce endurance in you. Do you know what endurance look like? You know what steadfastness looks like? It looks like an ability to trust God and obey God more faithfully than you do now. To stay faithful, to obey again and again. You're going along in your Christian life rejoicing in all of the blessings of the Lord and praising him for good health and a place to live and a means uh, you know, for providing for your family and, and all kinds of things that we can, we can share in a testimony and, and praise the Lord for. But then God takes something away from you. Do you praise him just as much now? God causes pain to come into your life. Sorrow. Are you still going to obey him? Follow him? Are you still going to affirm his goodness and his wisdom and his power and his love? If your answer is yes to these things, then God will stretch you and grow you through that trial. Remember how it went with Job. God had blessed Job immeasurably, and Job was faithful to God in prayer and in obedience. And and, and Satan said to God, yeah, but if you take away his blessings, he'll uh, he'll curse you to your face. God said, I'll allow you to make his life miserable within limits, which is a good thing to remember, 
Our trials are under the sovereignty of God, but what they are and the severity of them. God always has control. And after Job had lost his possessions and his children and his whole life was in ruins, Job 1.22 says that all, in all these things, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job grew in his steadfastness. He grew in his enduring commitment to God. Because that is what God is doing in allowing trials. He's taking the faith that we have and he's refining it so that it's better faith, better trust, better obedience. Because he knows that we are most satisfied as his children when we derive our satisfaction from him. It's really the same principles that soldiers go through in training for combat. Bobby Davis back there could tell us a whole much more about this than I can, but, but uh, I think he would agree with me to say that they, they, they do start with physically strong young men, uh, mostly men today, uh, some women at times, and they push them to the limit. And they've got to march and run and climb and crawl and do all these grueling things and learn hand-to-hand combat. And, and probably they want to quit along the way. It's, it's you know, the, the, the Marine recruiter was like, it's the, the best thing in the world. And they went, hurrah, and they all went in. But about halfway through it, they're like, why did I do this to myself? And, and they're, they're, they're broken down so they could be built back up. But in the end, it is only because of the rigorous training they receive that they can go on the battlefield and defeat the enemy. In the same way, the pressure that God is putting you under in your trials is producing in you a brighter, stronger, consistent ability to bring glory to God with your life. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction, which is what he refers to in his own trials as, which is stunning, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And and one of the things that's unseen is what God is actually doing in us. We have to accept that by faith because we can't see it by sight. Paul says the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So James is telling us, don't focus on the pain. Don't doubt God's wisdom and goodness and power and love. In fact, rejoice because you're growing and becoming stronger in your life with God. More obedient, more faithful, with a greater capacity to love God and love others and actually minister to others. With a greater desire and ability to bring glory to God. James says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when these trials come. God is testing you. He's pushing you. And if he is the God the Bible claims him to be, then there is a divine and good purpose behind everything he is doing. It means that your pain and heartache is not meaningless. It's not senseless. It's accomplishing something amazing in your life. But there's one other imperative that we find in verse 4 related to this trial. Not only are we to rejoice in the outcome of our trials, but we are also to endure till the completion of our trials. James says in verse 4, let steadfastness, the steadfastness is being produced through the trial, have its full effect. 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We're to have all joy so that the steadfastness being produced by our trials will have its full effect. He's telling us, be patient during the process of the trial. Endure until God is finished with it. This is not a sprint. This is a distance run. I think that we're all capable of obedience for a little time. We can all make an effort to rejoice in times of trial and pray and trust the Lord for a little bit, but when the pain goes on, we're not getting help from the medical world. Or there aren't answers about our situation. Or I just heard a testimony last night of a a man who started a business and it just kept crashing and he went on for month after month and he was going in the hole and he didn't know what to do and he was telling the story about early on in his marriage. Things happen like this. There's no answers. We're not sure what to do. We're not sure where to turn next. Some of you might hit that having said, you know, every time in my life I've always known exactly the next thing to do. God's always guided us, but God has not said he's going to do that every single time. You might hit a point where you're like, we're just not really sure what to go. There's a big trial. When the light at the end of the tunnel is really an oncoming train, then we need to stay seeking the Lord in prayer and affirming our commitment to him and telling him that we know he is good and wise and powerful and loving. That is the kind of endurance by God's grace that is maturing us. The idea of perfect and complete in Jewish thought is not that someone has reached absolute perfection. That's not what he's saying here. I think most of you know that. He's saying we're growing up. We're becoming spiritual adults. And when he says lacking and nothing there, that sort of helps us cement the point. What he's saying here is you're not lacking in any of the virtues that you would expect to see in someone who is mature in the faith. For instance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I would add gratitude to that list as well. It's also a fruit of the Spirit that we see in the New Testament. Do you know that all of these virtues that we say, Lord, I want you to build this into my life, God will build that into your life, but he will sometimes do it through pain. Until we know peace, until we really know patience, there's there's our word, by the way, until we know goodness, until we know how to be thankful, no matter what God is doing. Can I put it this way? God never wastes any of your pain. He never wastes any of your trials or your sorrow or your heartache or your pressure. He is using every bit of it to grow you so that you might have a greater capacity for enjoying him, a greater capacity for trusting him, a greater yearning to be in glory with him, and a greater contentment living your life now. What James is saying is, don't you waste this either. Let the hupamene, the steadfastness, the strength to remain faithful, have its full effect in your life for the glory of God. This is how God desires that we respond to our trials. I'll never forget the day uh, our oldest daughter, I don't think that she was even one year old. Maybe she was one, maybe going on two. Uh, I'll have to check with my wife later on the statistics on all this. But she was very, very tiny, and she was very sick. She wouldn't stop vomiting, and 
This went on for a couple of days. We didn't know what was going on, so we took her to the emergency room. And the doctors wanted to take an x-ray of her little body to determine if there was some kind of blockage or something going on. But in order to take the rest x-ray, the, the, the nurse had to strap her into this harness. I mean, she was too, we couldn't be there when the x-rays were, were going on, and, and she was too little to just lie on a table by herself, so she had to be strapped into this uh, contraption that would hold her so that they could, they could get the image. And so Rena and I were hovering over our little girl who was frightened and crying. She, she's our firstborn, you know, and she, I, I don't think she's even a year old. And she's not old enough to understand what her mom and dad are doing to her. And I'll never forget her little face looking up out of this contraption, her eyes just filled with tears, with this sheer bewilderment on her face. And then, worst thing of all, the nurse said, now you have to step back behind the lead curtain. So we had to actually walk away from her, leaving her in the middle of this big room, this darkened room, in the middle of this contraption. She's shivering. She's terrified. And, and, and she's, she's uh, uncomfortable. And she's in this frightening brace that was constricting her movement while the x-ray technician captured the images. And, and our daughter was crying my wife and I were crying. I think the x-ray technician was crying too, but I don't remember that for sure. Everybody was crying. Because in that moment, we realized that our little girl in her one-year-old mind could not possibly comprehend that we were not doing anything to harm her. In fact, we were doing everything to help her because we loved her. We were doing everything in our power to do something that was right for her and best for her. And we understood something that she could have never comprehended at her age. And how like God and his children we were at that moment. We sometimes think to ourselves, God is supposed to be a good God. Why is he allowing this to happen to me? Or I know the Bible says that God is infinitely wise, so why would he have done it this way? I could have thought of a hundred different ways it could have gone better. Or God is powerful enough to create the world and still the storm. When is he going to step in and still the storm that's going on in my life? And in our limited understanding, we cannot possibly know that God is actually doing for us in his goodness and wisdom and power and love what is right and good for us and, and to bring us the most good, the most blessing, and himself the most glory. But James is saying we need to grow up so that we are no longer little children with no comprehension of what is going on, so that we learn from our trials, just like our little daughter may have learned that day even though it looked like we had left her and even though she was in distress and pain and discomfort for a few moments, we had not left her. We were still caring for her and soon she was back in our arms. And if ever we are tempted to think otherwise, we can look at the example of Jesus himself. What does Hebrews tell us in chapter 12? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. There's our word, hupomene. The race that is set before us, how? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. There's the word again, the cross despising the shame, 
and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Lord is not asking us to do anything that he did not do himself. During his trial, which is unspeakable compared to any of ours, he endured because of the joy before him. He was looking at the outcome, the salvation of our souls to the glory and praise of God. That's living up to our faith by embracing our trials. And we need to pray as a church that God will give us the courage and the strength and the faith to endure and to encourage one another to endure so that God's perfect work will be realized in us for his glory. Father, we're thankful.